session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulaqui, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll be discussing on next Monday's show is Best Things First by Bjorn Lomberg. Best Things First, the 12 most efficient solutions for the world's poorest and our global SDG promises. Um, I looked at this book a bit and apparently it's looking at 12 solutions that can have a big impact using essentially the least amount of money or resources. And so at times it's sad when we think when we're talking about saving lives, we talk about money, but unfortunately that is uh, the reality of our our current world that we have to prioritize. And if we uh, spend money or focus resources in one place, at least for the time being, we won't have them in another place. Um, And so here's his um, suggestion for the 12 most efficient solutions uh, to help the world's poorest uh, in uh, using these, um, yeah, his, the research that he's done, a uh, part of being, I think, in a think tank in Copenhagen. So uh, looking forward to reading that and sharing with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD by Eli R. Lebowitz. Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, a scientifically proven program for parents. And um, sometimes I'm asked how I think of the books or choose the books. This one actually, a caller a few months ago was asking if I was familiar with um, the Spaces program created by Eli R. Lebowitz, and I was not. And so I looked into it and saw there was a book that he's written uh, that talks about that program, and I wanted to learn more about it. So I do appreciate suggestions you do make. I know I say that at the top of the shows. Uh, I always say suggest topics or books for the program, and I really do mean that. So that one, I, this one I can't thank by name, but uh, to that listener, if you are listening, thank you for this recommendation because this book um, introduced me to the work of Dr. Lebowitz that I was not familiar with, and I really did uh, enjoy this book, especially as a, a therapist myself, as more tools in my toolkit in in helping um, families, especially when they're dealing with children who might have anxiety or OCD, because the book does a great uh, job of overviewing first what childhood and adolescent anxiety is, even it goes into the other treatments that are there and out there, and then shares his own program that uh, has been developed, which as the subtitle says is uh, scientifically proven program for parents. So I'll explain more about that. But um, so if you have an anxious child, you might think, okay, someone has to see my child. And there are therapies and treatments that can be helpful. But this one is one where it's only 
directed at the parents and them making changes. And the big advantage of that is that if the parents are motivated, then you have everyone you need motivated and ready to go. But if you need your child to go to therapy and they either don't want to go, are not motivated, or even flat out refuse to go, then you have a problem. And so when I'm working with families, sometimes they want me to see their teenager, and I really do uh, emphasize with them, are you certain that your child wants to go to therapy? Because if they don't, if they're not motivated, we won't get anywhere. It's just like you can drop someone off at the gym, but if they don't want to work out and they don't work out, nothing's going to happen. Someone has to be motivated to do the work. So here uh, they have a program that is directed towards the parents. So whether or not the child is motivated won't matter. You can do it anyway. So that is uh, great. And I really enjoyed the way um, he talks about anxiety and anxiety issues, really clearly outlines them, but also shares how we want to be very careful not to uh, blame parents for having an anxious child, which we often do. And even as a therapist, I have to be mindful of that, that we at times can, you know, think, well, oh, maybe the parents have done something and really blame them if their child is anxious. Of course, what the parents do will impact how the child is. Um, but anxiety is caused by many things. And some children are just born more predisposed to be anxious. And that's just the way it is. And so now what is anxiety? I like his, uh, he introduces that early in the book, that of course we're afraid of things, we can look at fear, but anxiety comes more from our imagined dangers, or it comes really from our ability to be able to imagine dangers that are, might not be present, but because of that we can still feel this feeling of anxiety, which is unpleasant, which we can understand as a way of possibly preparing for dangers that aren't in front of us. So that can actually be very useful. We can't only face uh, the things that are right in front of us. We needed to be able to prepare and still need to be able to prepare for future things that can happen, that can go wrong, or to create a better future for ourselves. But unfortunately, as is often the case, human capacities that are good in some ways can also hurt us in other ways. So because we can imagine uh, dangers that are not there and that can help us make predictions and make changes in behavior or do things to prepare for them. But we can also imagine dangers that won't come about or imagine them so strongly that they interfere with our ability to function. And so people who have anxiety uh, issues or problems will often be unfortunately dealing with that and children can have this as well. So um, he, he goes into even the statistics that Anxiety uh, issues are one of the most common mental health issues in general, but also in children. And that at any given time, somewhere between 5 to 10% of children from preschool to adolescence have a current anxiety problem. That means currently now, not ever. If we look at ever, it's something like one in three children will have some kind of an anxiety issue at some point. So you go into a school... You should assume or you can know that roughly 5 to 10% of the children in that school will be dealing with some kind of an anxiety issue at that given time. So it is quite common. Um, and you know, he had an analogy for thinking of, of 
anxiety, which I really liked. Uh, the, uh, the analogy was of being in a minefield. So if you were walking around in a minefield, you knew that at any step, you know, there could be a big explosion and you could be hurt or killed. Uh, how would you proceed? You likely would walk very gingerly, um, not really go explore. There might be a beautiful flower over there, but really is it worth it when you could get seriously hurt or killed? And also, if you had to go backwards, you would likely take the exact steps you've already taken because you know they're safe. And so similarly, children with anxiety will feel this way. Things just feel more dangerous or scary for them. And so it won't feel worth it to go explore new things because they're afraid something bad can happen. And they prefer things that are routine and things they've already experienced because those feel safe. They already know they are safe rather than some unknown. So we all have this to a degree, things that are known, are more comfortable and safer for us. But for children who have anxiety, we can see that they are in a way predisposed to uh, overvalue the likelihood that something bad is going to happen. So they're almost expecting it to happen more than someone who is not anxious. And these types of things, as I mentioned, like a predisposition, it's not something you can just turn off or on to say, oh, you have nothing to worry about or that's never going to happen. Those things don't really help and doesn't have to be children, but just anyone with anxiety. It's kind of like saying someone walks into a room and they say they're cold and say, no, it's not cold. Or they say that noise is loud for them and you say, no, it's not loud. They can't affect that um, just by will or just wanting to. It's just how they're going to feel. He also describes uh, the different types of childhood anxiety, and there's some major diagnoses that come up, things like separation anxiety, so where children have a hard time um, being away from either one parent or both parents for fear of something happening to either the parents or to them, and this could become very intense. Also, he talks about social anxiety, generalized anxiety, phobias, and OCD. Even children can have OCD and show signs of OCD. So he talks about these different um, anxiety issues that you might see in your children. And also, as I mentioned before, treatments that include mostly CBT, cognitive behavioral types of therapy, are very common. Um, and they often include things like looking at thoughts that might be related to the anxiety, but also we see exposure therapy, and that's really a key theme when we're dealing with anxiety is that the only way out is through. If you're scared of something, anxious about something, we would, of course, that makes us want to avoid that thing. But really what we find is the only way to get over that fear or to get better with that fear is to face it, unfortunately. So anxiety makes us want to avoid, but we really have to go into it, and that's really something that as parents we have to be mindful of and that's a, a big challenge that parents have because you see your child not feeling good wanting to go away from something and your initial instinct is often just to make your child feel feel okay in that moment they don't like this let's get them away from that but unfortunately with anxiety if we take them away from that thing it it will only make the anxiety worse so he actually talks about this ties into the next issue I wanted to bring up that two common 
broad categories of pitfalls he see parents falling into. And those are either being protecting or being overly protecting or being demanding or over demanding. So again, the protection side is, of course, you want to protect your child from dangers. But the problem here is when we're dealing with anxiety, we're really not trying to protect them from a danger. We're protecting them from their anxiety or we don't want them to feel that way. So they feel scared of something or they're afraid of germs or something like that. And there's no actual danger that we're worried about. But when we go to these protecting types of behaviors, what we're trying to do is protect them from that anxiety. And unfortunately, when we protect them from that anxiety, it only makes the anxiety worse because now the thing they're avoiding feels scarier and they're even more afraid to face it. And so that gets into uh, the treatment that he has here, the spaces treatment, which is trying to help parents deal with their kids and help them with their anxiety. They have to move away from this protective, overprotective type of feeling. Um, I often talk about uh, pain prevention parenting, that often parents will operate from this mindset that all I'm supposed to do every moment is prevent pain for my child, and how unfortunately that doesn't protect your child, but it prevents your child from growing. And so here we also see that it prevents them from growing through their anxiety and actually makes their anxiety work. So that's one pitfall is the protecting. The other is the demanding side. And that's sometimes when we just say, oh, just get over it, or there's nothing to be afraid of, or it's all in your head. As I was saying before, they can't just turn that on and off. And so if you just tell your child to not be anxious, it doesn't work. And sometimes a parent can be overly demanding or have that type of style. Uh, another thing that parents might do in those situations is say, oh, see, I'm not afraid of that. The thing you're scared of, I'm not, a, I go do that thing and nothing happens. Um, I think lots of people do this, but I see Persians in general will do that a lot. They'll talk about, you say you're worried about something or something bothers you, and they'll tell you how they, they're not bothered by that thing, and it doesn't help you at all. And similarly, telling your kids, I'm not afraid of this thing, doesn't mean they will now not be afraid of it. So being protecting or being demanding doesn't quite work. And then after the break, I'll get into the changes. There's really two main changes um, that have a lot that go into them that he, he brings up in this book about how you can help your child and facing their anxiety and to deal with their anxiety to hopefully reduce it. Anxiety will never go away completely. It's part of being human, but it could become more manageable and less disruptive to their daily life and the family's life as well. So after the book, I'll continue the discussion on Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD by Eli R. Lebowitz. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion on the book, Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, a scientifically proven program for parents by Eli R. Lebowitz. Uh, and as I mentioned, there are two main changes that we see being encouraged or being essentially the treatment um, in this program. And so those are reducing family accommodations and responding more supportively. So family accommodations is basically the things that anyone does in the family, but mostly parents will likely do that will um, try to accommodate their child's anxiety, but actually can likely make the anxiety uh, stronger and more likely to prolong it in, in a way, make it more um, harder for the child to overcome their anxiety. So, for example, 
if the child has social anxiety, this is from the book, and the child was uncomfortable when guests came over to visit, that's the symptom. The family accommodation might be parents stopped inviting guests over when the child was home. And so maybe you as an individual, uh, especially as a parent, you might be able to relate to some of these things, ways that you try to accommodate your child's anxiety. Of course, coming from a caring place that you don't want your child to uh, be in this kind of pain or discomfort, but unfortunately, they can often be very unhelpful. And so, as I mentioned, one of the main ways that this treatment works, this program works, is to reduce these accommodations. So this can be very tough, of course, for the kids, but also for the parents. And so I might touch on that. But so it's basically realizing that these ways that you accommodate your child because of their anxiety might actually strengthen the anxiety and make it even harder for your child to uh, overcome it. So, for example, a child that might have OCD and has a compulsive or is obsessed with the number three, uh, here the accommodation might be something like parents would turn lights on or off three times if the child was in the room. So, again, it could feel like I'm doing something to make my child feel good, and that's always going to feel good in the moment. But here's where we have to have that bigger picture approach and realize that oftentimes those things that we do that we think might be helpful and they feel good to us and to the child in the moment might actually be hurting them. And so even he has uh, here, uh, he, he goes on to talk about how, of course, some accommodations are good and helpful. So it doesn't mean anything we do for our children. And even that word accommodation gets used in other ways. Let's say uh, a child has ADHD and gets extra time on an exam. That would be a type of accommodation using that same word, but that would be very uh, meaningful and correct. So, uh, for example, here he has, uh, your child is afraid to be alone in the shower and wants you to wait in the bathroom while she showers. So they have an unhelpful accommodation to be, you stay in the bathroom whenever she showers. So always going in there to reduce that anxiety. But for a helpful accommodation example he gives is, you agree to go to the bathroom with her and then to leave her there for a little longer each day. So, I mentioned that the way that we get over anxiety really at any age is exposure to the thing that we are anxious about. And we can see that the helpful accommodation is to still give that support and that comfort in a way, but to show the child that they can actually face it a bit more and slowly make it uh, so that they're facing it by themselves more and more, which is a theme that also comes in the book. So this is really the main target of the treatment, a main part of the book is focused on family accommodations and how we could reduce and eventually eliminate some of these accommodations and keep getting rid of these in order to make the child stronger. Now, the other one is to respond more supportively. And so this is important to um, keep in mind. He says that if we're taking away these accommodations, which also the way we do that will be important, but we want to make sure we're providing our child with more and more support. And so what does support mean? He has a type of definition or almost like formula for what goes into support, which I found quite helpful. And he says that support equals acceptance plus confidence. So if we're being supportive, it has to include both of these elements. It has to be, um, it has to include acceptance and confidence. So acceptance means something like acknowledging that 
the anxiety is difficult or that they have a hard time with these things. We can accept that and acknowledge that. So giving them that. The confidence piece is where we say we also have confidence that they can face this challenge, that we believe in them. And so both of those things are really important. And often parents might give neither uh, or more often they might give one but not the other. So they might just give acceptance and they're stuck more in the, I know it's hard, I know it's hard, so I'm going to try to make it easier for you. And that's where the accommodations come in doing too much. So this would be going back to the pitfalls. This would be protective. I accept it's such a hard problem. This is such a challenge. So we're going to do all the things that make it easy for you. So that's being protective. Um, the confidence piece, if you only have that, it could come off as demanding. If it's just that I believe you can handle it or this is easy for you or it should be easy for you, um, that could come off as demanding. We don't want it to be either. We want it to have both elements. So accepting and confident can be something like, I know this is very hard for you or you've had a hard time doing this thing. I also believe that you can handle it, that you can take this on. So we want to give that type of support. And I really like that because he even discusses acceptance and that word uh, comes up in different types of mental health types of issues. Even we talk about self-acceptance or if we accept someone um, Often it gives people the sense that, and I guess it, using his definition of support, if it's just acceptance, it might actually feel this way. But at times people think that means we're giving up. So if I accept that, let's say I'm anxious or someone accepts even that they have some type of, let's say, drug problem or they accept their current situation, often people think that means they're accepting it as good and staying there where it doesn't have to mean that. It could just mean I acknowledge and accept where I am today. Uh, the analogy I sometimes use is if you have a five-year-old child and you're trying to teach them math, first you'll try some problems with them. You might do some counting and then you might do some addition and subtraction and then you'll see what they can and can't do. And then you'll accept them for where they are and you will even hopefully praise them. Oh good, you know how to do these or you can count all the way to 20 or whatever it is, make them feel good for where they are at. But you won't think, okay, then I don't want them to learn anymore. I'm accepting it. You actually will have the confidence that, no, they can keep getting better. And I'm going to work with them and support them to get better at math. Because I do have confidence that they can learn more. So I accept them where they are. But I also have confidence and belief that they will uh, keep going. And so we can do that with ourselves too. This is where I am. But I do know I can grow. And so I liked his uh, explanation of support being acceptance plus confidence. Because I think that captures that quite well. So uh, as I mentioned, a big part of the treatment and a big part of this book focuses on these family accommodations, these things that the parents are doing to really help their child not feel anxious or try to prevent the anxiety, but that actually because of that are contributing to the anxiety and that we want to slowly reduce and even eliminate at times. So uh, in the book, he there are exercises and things that parents could do looking at what are the accommodations we do trying to really get detailed what things we do how often um, what does it look like what do we end up doing and, and all of that and so he says that after you've done that you've made this outline of the different ways you do accommodate of course it's going to be hard to just eliminate all of them at once it's probably going to be overwhelming both for the child but also the parents so he suggests picking one and it should be one that um, 
happens often enough because it's some if it's something that happens every few months, it's gonna be hard for it really the child to even recognize that and for it to make an impact. Ideally, it's something that's happening either daily or a couple times a week you know, that you think could be meaningful. So you choose one of these accommodations to start to reduce it. And also then you make a clear plan. So it's not just we're going to stop doing it or what does that even look like? How are you completely going to stop? Uh, he goes into you want to have, you know, all the details in place like a, a what, when, who, how and how much. So what will you be doing? When will we start? Who will be doing it? Is it one parent, both parents or other people involved? And then how is it going to be happening and how much are things going to be changing? Um, and then you make this plan. But what I also thought was interesting is that, of course, your child is used to you doing these things. So if you're going to make this change, it's going to be shocking for them, probably very difficult for them. And because of that, he actually recommends giving your child an announcement. And so even this, you clearly uh, make make very clear and you work on to make complete to make sure it includes all that information to share with your child. And here again, you're going to use the support. So you're going to have uh, acceptance and confidence. So it's not like you're going to say, oh, you should be over this by now or you're not you know, going to tell them, um, we know this is so hard. Oh, my gosh, we don't know if you can do it. You give them both. We We know it's hard for you and we also believe that you can overcome this or that this is going to be better. And you might even acknowledge your your role in this, that you've been doing this. So you really want to make sure your child doesn't feel bad, um, really to understand you've been the one accommodating. That's not your child's responsibility, what you've been doing, even if they've been um, pushing or if they've been asking for these things, what you do as a parent is obviously ultimately your decision and your responsibility. And as the subtitle of the book implies, what you're doing in this program is solely focused on you and your behavior. Of course, you're hoping it's going to impact your child. That's the whole point. But what you're trying to control is the only person you can control, which is you. Not my child is going to stop doing this or my child will start doing that. It's I'm going to stop doing these behaviors or I'm going to modify them in this way. And he even says, make sure when you look at your plan of what you're going to do, that it only includes what you're going to be changing, not what your child has to change or do. That's how the plan should go. So he says, make a nice uh, announcement to your child. And even he goes through different things that might come up. They might interrupt you. They might challenge it. They might react to it. And he gives some suggestions about how to deal with that. Because of course, we should expect if your child sees that you're going to stop doing something that makes them feel comforted, of course, they're not going to like that. So we're, we're expecting that. And if we zoom out again, what we're doing is we're doing something that will in the moment and in the short term, make our child feel more uncomfortable, more anxious, and not very good. But we believe that long term, it's going to help them grow and reduce their anxiety, which will have lots of positive impacts for them. And so this is why, as a parent, you have to be ready for this too. It'll be tough for the kid, but it could be tough for parents to see their kid in more pain or, or you're going to feel guilty that it's my heart hurting my child or doing something negative to them or uh, I'm being a bad parent if I don't step in. And that can be very challenging um, for parents to follow through in that way. And so the, the announcement can help show them that it's coming from a place of love and support. And again, the support means I know it's hard, but I also believe in you. I have this confidence in you. And so uh, then it gets into things like having a log and troubleshooting and, and different things that can come up because, again, your child 
won't even like it when you bring it up, but even now we should expect that when you actually make the change in this behavior, they're really not going to like it. And so he gets into different things they might do, even getting aggressive or even making threats, uh, you know, self-harm threats or different types of threats and how to potentially deal with those. And so I really did like this book because, um, as I mentioned, it's helpful for me as, as a therapist, but also a lot of the principles apply really to everyone. And I see this a lot. I think of this in health, any kind of uh, healthcare, preventative healthcare or treatment. Often you'll see, okay, here's a diet for people who have heart disease or things they can change. And really, even if you don't have heart disease, it's probably going to be good for almost anyone to be aware of those things. Let's say exercise, moderate exercise, making certain changes to their diet. It's probably good for basically everyone. So uh, to me, even if your child doesn't have some kind of um, anxiety disorder, and even he says doesn't have to be an anxiety disorder, he prefers using things like problem or issue because it might not meet uh, diagnostic criteria. And also that can come off pejorative to say it's a disorder or it might seem like it has a clear cause. But all children will deal with anxiety um, in some level. And so it could be good to understand these principles of what can be helpful and unhelpful and actually how often the things that come to our mind first are the ones that actually are long-term unhelpful when it comes to anxiety. So highly recommend this book and I really appreciate the the caller who gave me the suggestion or introduced me even to Eli Lebowitz and, and his work. But I think it'd be really helpful for all parents. It's really tough to deal with these issues and I appreciate his approach. is very non-judgmental to parents, supportive, talks about how hard it is. Even on the back of the book, it says um, he is also the father of three great and sometimes anxious boys. So in that way saying he he's dealing with it as well, which I, I appreciate. So highly recommend this book, especially to parents, definitely to therapists as well. It's Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, a scientifically proven program for parents by Eli R. Lebowitz. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So tonight was discussing the book Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD by Eli Lebowitz. And I was mentioning how really it's going to be good for any parent, I think, to learn some of these techniques and themes that come up in the book. And uh, anxiety is so prevalent that one in three children at some point will likely have some type of anxiety issue and five to 10% at any given moment. But even if anxiety isn't a major concern, I think the themes might apply uh, to really any family and any uh, child. But also we can uh, use these same themes or keep them in mind when it comes to ourselves living our own lives. It's very easy to look at someone else and think to ourselves, oh, that's a irrational fear or uh, they're limiting themselves. There's nothing to be afraid of or nothing to be insecure about. And looking at them and we're much more blind to the ways that we limit ourselves or to the ways that our own anxiety will get in the way of us um, doing new things, making changes and really living more fully. So sometimes our issues might be a specific thing. I was on a, a plane today, so you might have a fear of flying, let's say. And that one could feel very concrete and could limit people's lives. They might not uh, travel to certain places, take certain trips, um, have certain experiences because of that 
fear of flying. And so we at times we'll have these types of anxiety issues, disorders, whatever you want to call them, that are much more clear. But all of us have, um, we can call them self-limiting beliefs and different types of anxieties that hold us back that we likely aren't aware of, or we're very good at coming up with reasons why we do the things we do or don't do the things we don't do and make them seem like the right things to do. So again, from the outside, someone else might see it, but we ourselves might think, oh, well, I just like things these way. I like for it to be this way, or I don't want to change my job. It's been, you know, whatever excuse we come up with, but it's often a self-limiting belief or an anxious belief. And so here we could look at, as I was mentioning with our kids, we might have a hard time seeing them be anxious. It makes us feel bad. And because of that, we try to take away that bad feeling from them to take away the bad feeling in us. Um, But looking at our feelings in general, I'm a big proponent of being in touch with our feelings, being more aware of our feelings. But then what can also happen, or we can take that to a place where we think, well, if you feel something, act on that or let that uh, make the decision for you. And so the way I like to think of that is that feelings, uh, we can think of them as data, but not dictators, meaning that it's information. It's telling you something, something very potentially very, very valuable, but has some value or gives you some type of information about yourself or your experience or what's going on around you, but it shouldn't be your dictator. And that's what sometimes happens. So if people think they should really value their feelings and think, well, I'm feeling anxious and I shouldn't do it because I don't have to do it. I feel anxious. And so I should avoid that thing because it doesn't feel good. And that's not using our feelings to serve us the best. We can understand a feeling and the deeper we understand it, it actually will help us make a better decision. So you might meet someone and have a bad feeling about them. And that might just make you say, oh, let me get away from them. And it could be for the right reasons you go away from them, but you might dig a little deeper and see that, okay, it could be that they challenge me in a way that might be good for me, but I'd rather not. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So we have to go a little bit deeper than just does my feeling or do I have a good or bad feeling about something or a good or bad feeling in a moment and see what might be behind that or what might that feeling be telling me? In a way, this seems obvious because we know that if we just live our lives purely on what feels good in the moment, go towards the things that feel good and always avoid the things that feel bad, uh, we'll leave a very unsatisfying life and likely will be uh, unhealthy in every domain of life and not really successful in anything that that would matter. That's kind of how a baby functions. They just are going off of what feels good, going away from what feels bad, or even really relying on their parents to take away those bad feelings and give them the good feelings. But they can really only exist in that way. That's all they have. But as we get older, we can't just let that be our guide. If you, it's time to study and it doesn't feel good, you go away from it that's going to hurt you. If you eat the foods that only feel good all the time, that's not going to be good for you. If you take substances that make you feel good in the moment, that's not going to be good. So this is kind of obvious, but unfortunately at times won't recognize that it's just this good, bad feeling that might guide our actions or take us in the wrong direction. 
So if we're feeling anxious about something, and this is really the hard thing about anxiety, and it shows up in all sorts of ways, even in the anxiety that relates to procrastination, is that when we avoid the thing, or let me say it before that, when we're feeling anxious of something, that feeling makes us want to go away from that thing. This is what we're talking about. So you're about to start something. Oh, you have to go give a speech. You feel anxious. Everything in you is going to be telling you to go away from that. You have to work on this paper. You look at the blank screen. You get anxious. Everything in your body brain is saying, go away from that. And so if we just listen to that feeling, let it be our dictator, unfortunately, what happens is that anxiety gets worse. And we've all had this experience, let's say, if you're a student and you have that blank screen, you have a paper due and you want to write this essay, you look at the blank Microsoft Word document, that's not a, a plug or an ad, but let's say you're looking at the, the blank document and you have to start and you might get nervous. I remember having that feeling, okay, what what's the first sentence going to be or how do I write this? Or then you start getting nervous about, you know, am I going to write a good paper? How is this going to go? And that anxiety doesn't feel good. And so you will likely feel this urge to go away from it. And so this is why people often would then, you'd go to, let's say, back, especially in my day, go to Facebook or go to some other website as a distraction. And here's where, unfortunately, our feelings get us in more trouble. Because when you distract yourself in that way, you feel a big sense of relief. It feels really good. So you're feeling tense, looking at the blank screen. What am I going to write? Is that a good? No, I don't even know how to start this. Is going to uh, eight pages? How am I going to write eight pages on this? And then you go to that Facebook tab and look, and you're not obviously seeing anything that's that important, but just that distraction and going away from that thing that makes you so anxious is such a relief. It feels so good, unfortunately, that now it's going to reinforce and make it even stronger, this desire to distract yourself the next time. So you go on Facebook for a little bit. Oh, oh gosh, it's getting, it's 10 p.m. Now I got, I got to get to work. Okay, let me go back to this Word document. You look at it again and you feel it even more and even more you get a relief. And fortunately, that relief in the moment, it feels really good. In a way, if you uh, don't look at it, you will feel like I'm doing something really good because this feels nice. So this is what I mean by, unfortunately, as important as our feelings are, if we're not a bit more critical of understanding what's going on, they can really mislead us. Because anxiety, it makes it feel like, as I was saying, uh, it was really nicely explained in the book, it's about an imagined danger, right? So if there was a, a lion chasing you and got away from that lion, you would feel really good. You'd feel this big relief. But unfortunately, here the lion is the anxiety of writing this paper, which actually isn't scary in a way that you're in danger. Yes, you might be afraid of getting a bad grade or the evaluation of your teacher or professor, you're not in some kind of actual danger that you need to get away from. But unfortunately, the feeling will still push you away from that if we give in. So what we have to do is to go into that uncomfortable feeling. It's the only way. Um, I work with many people who have phobias, but even different types of anxieties about something, trying something new, getting close to someone or dating, something about their work whatever it might be. And there's often this wish, and even I think sometimes we see it in movies and TV shows when they look at uh, therapists or mental health, where someone will come in, the therapist figures it out. Oh, you're, you're afraid of snakes because one time your mom did this and it made you afraid and that 
you get this interpretation from the therapist and just the fear disappears. You're like, oh, I'm not afraid of snakes anymore because you figured out why I was afraid of them. What really could happen is if there is some memory like that, there usually isn't. Sometimes there is a very clear memory that might be linked to some kind of phobia or anxiety. That awareness might help. They're like, oh, okay, maybe that's why I'm so afraid of snakes or so afraid of dogs because my let's say mom or dad was afraid of dogs or I got bit by a dog one time when I was a kid that might give you some insight that might help you a bit to realize okay so yeah it's not that dogs are scary or of course that all dogs are scary I had this bad experience or I heard my parents say something and it made me afraid of them that will help in a way might make it easier for you to face it but it doesn't mean when you face it it's going to be easier it's going to feel good now when you see the dog, it's still going to feel scary because it's been linked in your brain as this scary thing. This is not safe. And so looking at the brain as a predicting machine, it makes sense. So your brain is now linked these things, snake or dog danger. You should go away from it, get away from this thing. And that's just going to be there. The brain will still predict that even if you think something different, it needs to experience new experiences to learn that this scary thing is not so scary and that only happens over time and so let's say you have a really nice friend with a sweet dog they bring that dog over or first you just see pictures of the dog this is like a systematic desensitization and then slowly you get to play with this very sweet friendly dog at first you'll probably be nervous if you measured your heart rate looked at your brain you'd probably feel a little bit scared but if you have these repeated experiences now your brain is a predicting machine will say oh this thing is not so scary actually this is kind of nice look how cute this dog is and it feels fun to play with the dog that will take some time to get there to go from phobia or really scared of something to enjoying it might take some time usually it does it can happen but we have to have the experiences like we have to lay down this new type of foundation that this thing is not so scary and so a lot of times it's not going to be something so concrete like dogs or snakes. It's just like social interactions or taking a chance. Um, speaking on this just this weekend, I saw my brother do something uh, quite courageous in this vein. Um, we went to this event. It was kind of like an open mic event. Mostly it was music and um, spoken word poetry. But my brother went up there and he did some stand-up comedy and he was quite funny but even before going just going up was a very courageous act because it was the venue he just did it all out of the blue it's obviously a very vulnerable thing and i think he was still nervous but i know he's done this now so many times because he's been doing for i think a year and a half going to different open mics and performing stand-up comedy um and I think almost almost weekly, probably not every single week, but often, that he feels less anxious. But I think the important thing is that I think he was still nervous or anxious. Doesn't mean it disappears, but the thing becomes less scary. You know, even doing this show, I don't know how many shows I've done, but it's probably it's hundreds. But when I'm coming to do the show, there's some anxiety still there after hundreds of times of of doing it. And actually tonight we had some kind of commotion you might hear Ghazala laughing in the background getting me up here because the door was locked and that's a whole thing but getting up here then so I really ran in the door as we were, you know the song was about to start for my show and so that of course adds a little bit more but even after doing it so many times there's some anxiety 
it's definitely way less than my first show, and it's only because I did it many times. So it's a reminder that things that feel scary, it makes sense. That's how our brain or your body will respond. But the only way they become less scary is we have to go out there and do it. And, you know, we talk a lot and I talk a lot about comfort zones and getting out of our comfort zone. It all sounds really nice, but every time we get out of our comfort zone, it feels very scary. It doesn't feel so nice anymore. It always feels scary. And so just encouraging you to be aware of that, that feelings are wonderful. I I think it's what makes life worth living is how we feel. But we want to make sure they're not our dictators and make sure that we pay attention to where that feeling is coming from. Is it, if I follow it, is it going to guide me towards growth or take me away from growth and keep me stuck? And with anxiety, the only way out is through. We have to face that discomfort and not feel good and after a while we see that oh this is not so scary after all all right that brings us to the end of tonight's show a big thank you to Ghazal in the studio for also letting me in and doing the sound for tonight's show you've been listening to in session with dr fired alakwi zan zendegi azadi